Welcome to the AM Global Podcast Series addressing business concerns we face today. In today's podcast, our experts will discuss the impact of the COVID 19 vaccine and its rollout on their workforce and business. Welcome. So I'm Larry Kaiser, a physician and managing director in the healthcare industry group at Alvarez and Marcel. We're glad that you've joined us for this special podcast discussion on the role of the employer in the largest vaccine rollout ever undertaken in this country and perhaps the world. As I'm sure all of you are aware, the U.S. death toll from this pandemic now exceeds 450,000, with close to 27 million total cases reported, which translates into a rate of 8,000 cases per 100,000 population, a ratio that is among the highest in the world. Thus far, almost 56 million doses of the vaccine have been distributed, with about 34 million doses administered. This translates to about 8.2% of the population who've received at least one dose with 1.9% fully vaccinated. Today, we're speaking with healthcare executives to discuss how employers can play a pivotal role in both educating the public and distributing the vaccine. I'm joined today by an extraordinary panel of executives who I will briefly introduce. First, Chuch Mulek, the CEO of CarePoint Health uh, System. Dr. Mulek's a cardiovascular surgeon by training with expertise in congenital as well as acquired heart disease. He has more than 20 years of hospital leadership experience and worked in one of the largest healthcare systems in the world, Fortis Healthcare. We're also joined by Michael Ugueke, President and Chief Executive Officer of Methodist Leban Hewer Healthcare. Dr. Ugueke assumed the role in 2017 after having served as Vice President and Chief Operating Officer at Methodist since 2014. Dr. Dan Castillo, the Chief Medical Officer and Group President, Product Quality and Innovation at Matrix Medical Network, a leading provider of home-based and mobile healthcare services ranging from wellness exams to advanced diagnostic testing is also with us today. And in addition to his role at Matrix, Dr. Castillo is also a practicing emergency room physician at Northwestern Memorial Hospital in Chicago. And finally, and certainly not least, Brett Coburn, Brett's a partner at Alston and Bird, where he focuses on employment litigation and counseling. With those introductions, again, thank you for joining us today for a topic that certainly is timely. The intent today is for each of our panelists to share perspectives on the COVID-19 crisis and vaccine rollout and how they are approaching their role as an employer in the dissemination and education of the vaccine. As the country has experienced ebbs and flows in surges of COVID cases and now seeing a decline in cases, at least temporarily. We trust today's discussion will be particularly relevant as organizations have begun to address the vaccination of their workforce in order to ensure the health and safety of staff, patients, or customers, and as the pandemic looks on. So let's just get started right away with this great panel. How have things gone thus far in your organization and what hurdles have you experienced that perhaps you did not anticipate? Dr. Ugueke, please. Thank you, Larry, and good morning to uh, all the panelists. Yes, so the vaccine rollout at Methodist Laverna started December 17th, uh, once we received the first uh, shipment of uh, Pfizer. And the goal at that time, as was uh, stated publicly, was to begin to vaccinate uh, direct, what I will call frontline associates, 1A1 group. And we immediately uh, jumped into uh, vaccinating all of our frontline associates. 
uh, using the supply that we received at that time. And that part has gone well, relatively well. Um, initially, we wanted to make sure that everyone that works in the ED area, uh, patient COVID units uh, were all vaccinated. So we started with that group and then started to expand to other uh, support uh, groups. To date, we vaccinated about 17,000 people. We have 13,000 associates. So most of our associates, physicians, partners, and uh, affiliated physician partners have all been vaccinated. The uh, uptake of the vaccine is still, you know, we're not quite, uh, you know, where I would like to see us uh, be relative to, you know, all the, all the associates. I can tell you we're hovering close to 60, 60, maybe 62% uh, right now. The goal for us, we wanted to, at a minimum, get to 75, maybe 80% uh, vaccination. The rest of the That's vaccinations great. that we've done also, we've extended it to the community. We've now partnered with the Shelby Health uh, Department to vaccinate community members that are over 75 years old. And as of this week has moved down to 70. So. We are actively uh, vaccinating folks in the community land. Where do things stand? So, uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, Dr. Uweke, that was uh, very encouraging that uh, you and I, in our system, have about 66 to 70% of the frontline workers vaccinated. So, it's, it's, we have three hospitals in our system, and it's a community hospital. And uh, Jersey is unlike many other states, uh, the local population love their community hospitals. So we also have open pods now uh, for the last two to three weeks. Uh, point of distribution, that means we allow uh, people from outside the ho hospitals, employees to come and get the vaccination. Uh, we had a survey uh, for the employees and uh, the beginning of the survey, uh, the Department of Health had mandated a survey and about 40 to 50 percent in between the three hospitals uh, showed interest in vaccination. And now about since then, the interest has gone up. We are about 65 to 70 percent, 66, 70 percent of the uh, frontline workers and hospital employees and anybody who is paid on paid uh, worker who has been uh, vaccinated. The city has now come in and uh, we have expanded. Uh, it's been tiered, however, uh, New Jersey is slightly different. We so we work very closely with the Department of Health, which is very actively involved, and they've been uh, changing certain criteria. They have moved up the firemen and the police, and so we our open pod is uh, allowing a lot more people to come into our hospitals and get vaccinated. So we have three open pods right now. So, all right, Dan. Tell us a little bit about what your organization is doing in terms of uh, rolling out vaccines. And um, have you been uh, contacted by uh, large uh, employers in terms of uh, distributing vaccine? Yeah, um, and good to be with everybody this morning. So Matrix is a little bit different um, in that we are a, a distributed workforce. So we have clinicians um, uh, in all 50 states. So to vaccinate our own workforce, uh, we have to overcome um, additional challenges. And some of those challenges are really about having to interact with all the different local uh, departments of public health, different states, um, making sure that we have all those contacts in place, 
because we don't have that one bricks and mortar presence uh, where uh, you know we can just have that uh, single port point of engagement. So because of that, operationally, to uh, provide vaccination opportunities for our work staff uh, has been um, incredibly challenging. Um, there's some typical challenges, right? Like in the beginning, we want to make sure we educate our workforce, um, even though they are healthcare workers. Uh, you know, there's a lot of information out there, um, and there, uh, and especially in some of our um, communities, there's natural um, distrust at times of the information that's coming out, and then that oftentimes is exacerbated by the political. Uh, nature of some of the conversations. And so how do we overcome that? We really have been pushing data and science, just trying to make sure that people understand uh, whether they're our, uh, our own workforce or people that we're supporting, um, that certain steps have been taken. There's been independent bodies that have reviewed the data on these uh, vaccines, that um, uh, the work on them started long before uh, uh, you know the coronavirus uh, pandemic um, uh, began because of some pre-work done uh, during the SARS and MERS uh, challenges earlier on um, uh, in the 2000s. So, um, so we've had multiple challenges uh, with our own organization. Um, uh, their other uh, issue that we've run into is that we support uh, large employers um, uh, across the country uh, in getting their employees vaccinated. Uh, so now we start moving into 1B, uh, essential workers. It's been um, uh, already publicized about our working with Tyson Foods, helping get their employees vaccinated. Um, there's other large employers that we're also supporting. Um, and um, some of those challenges, again, come up. Uh, how do we appropriately educate uh, people, especially uh, when uh, you know English isn't their first language, especially, again, when uh, perhaps we're in rural communities and, and populations of color. Uh, how do we make sure we're culturally um, uh, communicating with them in sensitive ways? Um, it's around educating. It's around making it easy to get the vaccine. But uh, again, there's challenges, uh, especially when you start uh, having to interact with multiple different states that might be handling it in different ways. Um, uh, so, um, uh, so certainly some of those challenges aren't, aren't unique to what we're going through, but um, perhaps a little bit different than uh, um, what we've heard so far on this panel. Yeah, and as you pointed out, much of this is locally driven. Um, there are no federal mandates as such. I mean, there's some CDC recommendations, but a lot of this gets down uh, not just to the state level, but really to the to the county and municipality level. Let me turn things over to, to Brett for a second. And um, so, Brett, can we mandate employees to get the vaccine if they wish to continue to be employed? And for that matter, uh, what risk does an employer run if it doesn't require employees to vaccinate in order to maintain the safest possible uh, workplace? Talk a little bit about sure. that. Yeah, thank you, Larry. So to talk first about can an employer require employees to get a vaccine? The short answer is yes, but subject to several very important exceptions that they need to bear in mind. The, the two primary exceptions are if an employee has a sincerely held disbelief that would prohibit the person from, from receiving the vaccine, or if the person has a medical condition that would indicate that the person should not get the vaccine. And I would include in that, you know, medical conditions that may be longer term, but, but also potentially women who are pregnant, women who are breastfeeding. Um, 
the company is going to need to go through an accommodation process. And the EEOC issued some guide, guidance a couple of weeks ago that, that are very helpful um, in, in helping employers understand the sort of analytical framework that they need to think about. But, but the employers need to understand that they have to have systems in place for considering and addressing religious accommodations and, and medical-related accommodations. Um, the other important exception is if you have a unionized workforce, you are, the employer is going to need to, to bargain with, work with the union before rolling out um, a, a mandate. Uh, the, the, the last point I'll make, and this is a little bit more of an amorphous point, but one that's important to keep in mind is, as we know, the vaccines that are out there now have not been approved by the FDA. They have been authorized under the EUA. And the, the federal laws that, that allow FDA to issue an EUA have a lot of strings attached to them, including requirements that, that recipients be given information about their ability to decline the vaccine and, and similar issues. And so there's at least a theoretical possibility that someone who declines a vaccine and is terminated from employment as a result or not hired in the first instance as a result may try to claim some sort of wrongful termination in violation of public policy. The, the viability of that type of a claim is going to depend on state law, and, and obviously it's very untested. Um, so, you know, I, I don't think that that risk is a strong, you know, statement that, that employers cannot mandate in light of the, the EUA status of these vaccines, but it's something to bear in mind. To your other question, Larry, about whether employers... Uh, what risk they may run by not mandating a vaccine. I think that risk is small and extremely amorphous. You know, the, the, the concept would be that a guest, you know, a visitor, a customer, or an employee might say, hey, you didn't get all of your, require all of your employees to be va vaccinated, and I therefore contracted the vaccine in your workplace. You know, a lot of issues there. One, proving that, that you contracted it in that workplace rather than somewhere else is, is going to be very challenging and, and proving that the employer somehow breached a duty, right, was somehow negligent by not requiring all employees to be vaccinated. Those are going to be uphill battles. Um, and, and the last point I'll add there is to the extent you have employees claiming that they contracted COVID in the workplace, that would most likely be something covered through the workers' compensation system and the exclusive remedies. In other words, they would not be able to sue for negligence. Are there risks in not mandating a vaccine? Yes, but I think at the end of the day, there those risks are you know outweighed by the practical concerns that the other panelists have already talked about about just the reluctance of many employees to to receive a vaccine. So it's interesting you mentioned the issue about uh, a worker contracting. Uh, the disease and claiming that they contacted it from the workplace when clearly they've been out uh, in public as well and yet the default is to uh, workers comp so maybe just comment a little bit on that where the default would be oh i got it at the workplace um and so workers comp is responsible H how have employers been looking at um, at that well i think that issue is very much in flux still because this is the this whole situation the pandemic is is you know obviously very unique and not something that the various state workers' compensation systems have, have ever had to contemplate. And so I, I honestly, Larry, don't have a good answer for you about how 
you know, these things have been playing out in the comp system because I think it's going to be very state specific and very fact specific. Um, but in my experience with, with the clients that I've worked with, this has not been the workers comp issue has not been an issue that's been front of mind. What's been front of mind, you know, pre vaccines was all the health and safety measures that employers can and should be putting in place to try to limit um, the the introduction of the of the virus into the workplace and, and limit the spread if it does make its way in. Yeah. So let me let me shift gears a little bit and and get back to Michael. So instead of mandating, um, is it reasonable to incentivize employees to take the vaccine, or for that matter, is there any role for for incentives? You know that um, Methodist in Houston is paying five hundred dollars to each employee for taking the vaccine. What what are your thoughts about uh, incentives, Michael? First. Thank you again, Larry. Um, I don't know. I think it's still too early to determine what incentives in this case works or not. Obviously, this uh, actual uh, impact and fear of catching the virus ought to serve as an incentive, you know, to prevent it and not be uh, a victim of it. Um, yes, ideally, we would like to mandate that everyone gets vaccine because I think not only does it create a level of safety for our own associates, but also to the community members. And it also helps us to open up the visitations uh, for visitors to come into the hospital. You know, uh, you go back to flu shots, for example, flu vaccine. It's mandated. We are um, making it mandatory for all of our sources. But at the same time, back to Dan's point, we have to give them uh, those that have medical conditions or religious reasons or whatever reasons they can't take the flu shot, an alternative. So back then, what we usually, the alternative was to wear masks throughout the whole flu season, right? So with uh, COVID, everybody's wearing a mask. So what are you going to tell them differently, you know, to say, if you don't get a COVID vaccine, this is your alternative for those that are, you know, medically challenged or have some religious preferences. They're already wearing a mask and that we know helps, but it's not pure alternative to a vaccine, which really works. So uh, we have not considered uh, any form of incentives uh, to uh, entice people to do it. We've appealed to them, obviously, for various ways with data science and emotion. And uh, we've had uh, some of our associates that have taken it, various uh, departments, record uh, for everyone to kind of watch and encourage, but also record their reasons for taking it. Some would say, no, I'm doing this because I wanted to make sure that my grandmom is healthy or somebody else is. So they all have their whys, why they're doing it. So those whys have been appealing emotionally to some of those that may or may not want to do it. What we're battling, I'm sure, as you guys know, is the misinformation that is out there and trying to uh, deal with the political, you know, linens and, uh, you know, uh, uh, spins that is going around the country. That's really the challenge. And I think Dan hit it in the head, he said EUA. So, you know, still, some people still, you know, and I don't even know, you know, you can mandate that to Dan's point because quite frankly, it's still not FDA purely approved yet. Right. And Chooch also comment a little bit about uh, about incentives. And, and and we're gonna get into this conversation about some of that misinformation in a little while, but but Chooch, what, what, what's your view about uh, incentives? My take on this is, uh, first of all, you know, all the hospitals in this country are reeling under financial constraints due to COVID. So additional expenditure 
to incentivize employees uh, is additional burden. That's number one. And that's a smaller portion of it. The bigger part of it is none of us really, and nobody in the, in the world probably can tell really how this virus is eventually going to behave or the vaccines. As uh, Brett said it and Mike just said that it's still under EUA and we do not know the efficacy of this vaccine yet. We do not know how many different morphs or different types this vaccine is going to uh, evolve into. And this is an open subject right now. So uh, morally also as a, as a head of an institution, I feel wrong to incentivize or mandate anything right now because we have, there's still a lot to be learned about this virus. Efficacy is decreasing the uh, effect of this virus on our bodies and the spread. We do not know that yet. The studies are now, say, four months old, besides the 1,000 patients they saw for clinical stage two and stage three, maybe 50, 60,000. But as this vaccine duration goes longer, we get to know how long the immunity lasts, how safe it is. And to everybody's point, and you're going to come to that, the rumors uh, are tremendous. And if you look at, I just uh, distributed a Pew's report, which I came across while uh, researching for this podcast a little bit more, uh, which shows there's a disparity in the communities. The Asian communities, over 80% believe in the vaccine. African-American community, only 40%. There's a lot of, lot of disparities and beliefs based on where you're getting information from. But personally, as a clinician and a physician, till I get more data, and this evolves. You know, as a cardiovascular surgeon, we did not start a procedure till we were completely sure it really works. We are in the early stages of finding out the efficacy of the vaccine and also very early in the stages of finding out how this virus evolves. Dan, let me let me turn to you for a second and talk a little bit about um, about logistics of getting employees vaccinated. You've got big clients and you mentioned Tyson. Have you been able to uh, obtain an adequate supply of the vaccine um, when you go into a large workplace like that? Uh, talk a little bit about the the logistics. Um, you know, and you mentioned some of these are not uh, English speaking. What about consents um, in terms of employees uh, taking the day off afterwards? Talk a little bit about the logistics, if you would. You know, never in the course of human history has something like this been undertaken, right? I mean, something to this level where we're trying to roll out a vaccine uh, across the country, across the world um, uh, that are on EUA approval. We're trying to engage populations. We're rolling it out um, uh, in ways that that hasn't been as centrally controlled uh, when we look at the federal government. I mean, the challenges are just enormous. Um, uh, I can't even begin to talk about uh, even the challenges of tracking down the right people in, in some community uh, uh, in North Carolina versus a state uh, uh, somewhere else. I mean, the, the, the amount of phone calls and, and um, conversations and paperwork uh, to get um, uh, fully um, uh, deemed, uh, you know, a, a, a vaccinator in a community, that, all that work is incredible. Um, short answer, Larry, no, we haven't been successful in being able to, to get the amount of vaccine that, that these um, uh, essential workers need. Um, and that's not because we haven't tried, it's because there hasn't been vaccine available. Um, uh, and we might get word one week that we're gonna get vaccine uh, to cover a, a plant. And then three days later, we find out, actually, no, sorry, 
uh, we don't we don't have the vaccine. We we have maybe ten percent of what you're looking for. Um, and so, as you're trying to engage a workforce, um, especially some that that come from communities that that distrust uh, vac vaccines um, or, or or the methods in which in which um, vaccines are created, it, it makes some of these challenges even more um, uh, difficult, right? Because now it's not just trying to educate and, and here's when you need to come and get the vaccine, but oh, you know, actually, sorry, that's changed now. Uh, uh, we're not going to have it for probably another week or so. So the challenges are, 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 are um, amazingly difficult. Then you get into some of the other issues as far as once you get the vaccine, um, you know, making sure that they're handled appropriately, that the cold chain is right. Um, uh, one location might be one vaccine with one um, uh, method of, of storing it and, and administration another. Uh, might be a different method uh, uh, as far as when the second dose comes. So the logistical challenges here um, are, are, are very, very challenging, um, very difficult. Um, a couple other things that I wanted to, that have been discussed. Um, despite all of that, I'm a firm believer that we need to get needles in as many arms as possible. Uh, I think the data uh, that is out um, uh, would, would uh, lead me to believe that that is the right thing to do. Um, I certainly did not hesitate uh, to, get, to get my vaccine. Um, uh, and I encourage uh, everyone uh, to get vaccinated. Um, certainly, there's going to be some folks that need to make some decisions based on um, whether they, you know, are anaphylactic to certain things. You know, pregnancy and breastfeeding is some of the, uh, some some um, have been already covered. Uh, but for the most part, we need to get needles in arms, um, and so we need to to make sure that we're educating. And the incentivization question, you know, I think about it this way. Um, you know, it's that old saying that for every complicated problem, there's a solution that's simple, easy, and wrong. What that means is that it's not going to be just one thing. You're not going to incentivize, and then all of a sudden you get 80 to 90% of your workforce vaccinated. Uh, you might use that tool, um, uh, but you have to also rely on education. You have to rely on data. You have to engage people where they work and live. Um, I look at it this way. Um, my role is to remove as many obstacles as possible and to make it as easy as possible uh, for people to get vaccinated. Um, that's how we've been looking at it. So, Larry, I want to jump in there just a second. I think Please go right ahead. Yeah, he has a very good point, particularly as he relates to incentives. You know, if you create an incentive for this particular vaccine, you know, you may be setting up a precedent that next time you want something else done, there'll be an expectation that has to be an incentive to get it done. You know, so we all have to be very careful where we draw the line, uh, whether we, you know, encourage them now, then the next time it'll be, you know, another source or some other, you know, thing, and then there'll be an expectation, you know, I'm not getting it unless you pay me or give me something. For so it's a slippery slope, and I think we need to be very concerned about that. Yeah. And Michael, you know, honestly, like, um, uh, you know, incentives, especially financial incentives, if we really do the homework on financial incentives, um, they're not as powerful when it comes to intrinsic motivators uh, uh, versus extrinsic motivators. And so when we think about financial incentives, I think about it as it can remove obstacles. So if someone's, you know, an hourly worker and you're going to pay them for those hours to go get vaccinated, I think that in that case, a financial incentive could actually work. Um, 
But if I'm someone who doesn't believe that this is going to help me, or I am very reluctant because I've read something somewhere that makes me distrust it, offering me money is probably not going to overcome that. Um, uh, uh, um, it, it really has to be um, how do we make sure that people get comfortable with it, that they understand that um, for the most part, when people get vaccinated, they don't end up in a hospital anymore, right? Yeah. I mean, that's 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 important data to understand when you really compare it. If you are vaccinated, you are you are basically not you're turning COVID into something that is much less severe. So you will not be in a hospital. Uh, you will you will not die um, uh, if you get vaccinated. And so we have to make sure that we're educating appropriately. So we're hopefully vaccinating lots of people. And as you point out, we want to get the vaccine in as many arms as possible. But Brett, let me turn back to you. What liability does an employer incur if an employee develops a significant vaccine-related complication? And for that matter, does the federal government have any liability here? Do the drug companies have any liability? Um, what, what, what liability do we have? And, and we've in the past seen people have complications from, from vaccines. Fortunately, we're not seeing many. Yeah, I mean, so so Larry, from the employer perspective, you know, again, um, it, it probably depends on whether the va- the vaccine was mandated or or simply um, encouraged or made available by the employer. But you know, the the and obviously all this is you know brand new and unfolding. But but I think there is a a very strong argument that if an employer requires a vaccine and the employee then has a, a, an adverse reaction to that, whether severe or, or, or not severe, that that would be covered through the workers' compensation system. And, and the comfort that should give to employers is, A, that's going to be covered by their workers' comp insurance, and B, it will most likely preclude the employee from suing the employer and, and trying to run up a big jury. That's the quid pro quo of the workers' comp system. It, you know, the expenses get covered, but you can't sue in tort, right? So from the employer perspective, I, I don't think that concern about employee um, adverse reactions should be something that is, is really um, playing heavily into the calculus. I, I honestly can't speak to um, the, the federal government and, and the drug manufacturers because, I, as you said, I'm an employment lawyer and, and not a products liability lawyer. But, you know, I think we can all predict that Pfizer and Moderna are certainly going to have some lawsuits that come out of this. But that's, you know, that's part, part of the cost of being a large drug company, I think. So let me shift gears a little bit here and, and get back to something that uh, Michael said. Why do you think we're lagging behind in vaccinating people of color? And, and what are the reasons? You know, for instance, in Mississippi, where blacks account for 38 percent of cases and 41 percent of the deaths, they are currently only accounting for 17 percent of the vaccinations in a state where 38 percent of the population is black. How do we craft a message and deliver it to diverse and underserved communities? And how do you overcome some of the trust gap around these vaccines? Michael, if you don't mind, we'll start with you and then we'll move to the others as well. Larry, uh, it is very challenging. There is no easy answer to it. Obviously, you have to go back to uh, years of um, uh, of uh, history in terms of uh, inequities and disparities in care and all of that. Especially even with COVID, obviously, we all know that there are uh, minorities, particularly African Americans, are impacted the most. So some people argue, you know, 
maybe if we have you know addressed some of these disparities in care that are causing some of the social determinants of health issues and all of those things, maybe the cases wouldn't be the same. And uh, you know, uh, there's a lot of um, historical as well as um, uh, biases and things that has happened as a result of you know how we've treated minorities that it's making them very um, suspicious of everything that looks good or comes across as we're trying to help you. So we have to appeal to them both from a logical perspective, science perspective, but also recognizing the impact of that history and know that it's not something that can be just uh, ignored. Uh, I think the fit leaders of uh, various uh, congregations ought to play a role in that. Uh, the civic leaders, the elected officials, they all ought to play a role in that. But I think you'll take a lot more than just, uh, you know, talking heads. Somebody has to really get into the communities where some of our, our minority uh, individuals live and be able to make it easily accessible to them, you know? So we, in some states, for example, in Memphis, we have a drive-through um, uh, vaccination that is set up by uh, the Shelby County Health Department. Not everyone has transportation, you know? So to the degree that we could go back to some of those communities and set up uh, you know, a strike force or some kind of temporary tent or whatever, and make it extremely convenient for people to, to be able to, to get it. I think that will help. I don't think that will overcome the obviously the uh, concerns, but I think as they see their neighbors and friends doing it, that will help. The other piece, quite frankly, we can appeal to folks through opening schools. You know, if we all get these vaccines, the kids now can go back to schools, right? So that's another way to really address that and encourage people to to get that. Chooch, comments? Getting out the message? Yeah, yeah so uh, to Michael's point, I think sending out the message is very important. How we do the, send this message out, uh, it has to be thought through uh, to communities. Uh, you, you have to speak it in, supposing it's a Hispanic community, which is about 60% of them, uh, still, uh, it's much lower acceptance compared to, this is just one study, though it's reflective of all communities. It's, well, the African-American community, only 40% believe in vaccine. But it, the, the language has to be relevant. Uh, the, the Hispanic community has to be, give, the discourse has to be by from their community leaders to them. So I think there is a lot of information that needs to go out, and that will only crystallize as we see fewer and fewer complications, more publications coming out which are relevant, large, like the publication from Lancet that came out on some vaccines. These are the things that will go out. The doctors will spread the message. Community will spread the message. I think yeah. it is very important that all of us as physicians, as community leaders, as lawyers, and before I uh, finish this uh, chain of thought, I think our system is slow. As you said, why are we so slow in dispensing Vaccines. I think India is going to be far ahead of. I'm not saying because I'm an Indian, but I'm seeing what's going on there. They're going to be far ahead of us in dispensing vaccination, and partly is because we have a very healthy medical legal legal infrastructure. And anything that happens, there's always a lot of regulations and laws which is necessary. But in this time, when there is need for mass distribution of vaccines, and there has that other countries will take us march. Uh, before us and also production of course we are not producing enough 
So can you hear that? This is Daniel. Let me just jump in on that real quick. Um, yeah, I was gonna I was gonna turn to you because oh. you 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 encounter these workplaces where there's incredible diversity. Talk a little bit about some of the message and getting the message out, please. Yeah. Well, I think it's I think we should start by realizing that um, that equity in healthcare hasn't existed before. So why should we expect it to all of a sudden be different with vaccines? Um, so that's that's one thing to to I think keep in mind is that we haven't in this country done a good job of, of um, uh, getting equitable health care to, to all the different communities. Um, and that plays out um, in African-American communities and um, Latinx communities. Uh, it just, we know that health care has not been equitable. And so um, I also see this moment as an opportunity to address this in more systemic ways, to address uh, the healthcare uh, issue of, of equity and making sure that we um, uh, improve access uh, to other populations, to all populations. And so one of the things that, that Matrix does um, is we have about 80 mobile clinics. Uh, and these are not you know, vans, these are, these are you know, three, four uh, um, uh, exam room clinics with waiting rooms. And we will meet populations where they live and where they work. Uh, and we uh, ensure and, and work hard to recruit our providers to be diverse, to come from the communities that we're gonna go to, because that's also important. There's a lot of publicized um, studies out there about um, you know, if your provider looks like you, comes from your background, that you're more likely to trust them. And that's really what we're getting into. It's not just, accessible healthcare, but it's also trusting the person that's in front of you. And so we work very hard to meet them where they are, to meet every community where they are, uh, to meet populations where they are, uh, patients, workers, uh, and to make sure that we're recruiting a diverse workforce. Because that just, in my, in my opinion, that allows us to start to address uh, that equity problem. But it's not going to be a um, kind of a one- uh, one solution fix here. Um, uh, equity in healthcare is something that uh, has not existed before, uh, and this is an opportunity to try to uh, work to resolve some of that. Yeah, and I think that that's so critically um, important to recognize that um, you know access has not always been equal. And certainly uh, what we're seeing now with the distribution of these vaccines and getting people vaccinated, uh, there continue to be disparities. And it is going to be something that is going to need to be resolved because we want to get as many people vaccinated as possible. So a recently published study in, in the journal Science suggests that the majority of spread of the virus, interestingly, is caused by those in the 20 to 49 age group. Um, should we be prioritizing vaccinating those in that age group to if they're the spreaders, if you will, right now, they're not really included in any of the distribution of the vaccine. So, Michael, turning it back to you, what do you think about uh, switching over to vaccinating uh, those in uh, in that age group? This is almost more of a political question, but um, what do you think? It's very interesting uh, question, and it's a conundrum. Obviously, um, you have to fight it on both ends. Obviously, we have senior citizens that are dying from the back, uh, from the virus themselves. So, if we don't vaccinate them and they catch it, the likelihood of surviving is very low. So, we have young people that are spreading it but have no symptoms, right? So, and they're in schools for the most part, they're in colleges or whatever. 
So my take on it, to be very honest, is one, we have to produce enough vaccines to go around. I don't think we can play, um, you know, this game, let's do this group or that group or that group. We have to truly create enough vaccine and be able to administer. The problem we're having right now is our distribution. You know, I think I was reading somewhere it's been whatever 50 something vaccines distributed, only 30 something million so far has been uh, injected to people. So we have a gap there just for, based on that. And uh, the new administration has promised to uh, do 100 million vaccines in 100 days. My hope is, quite frankly, if we're going to move in that direction, we'll get to this group. Uh, this group of people sooner than later on, but we got to start with obviously the what I would classify as the critical areas: the healthcare workers, you know, the first responders, and the senior citizens. And then we could get down to it because I, you have to prioritize your risk. I don't think we can solve all of this at once because if you decide to give to the young ones, you are actually making a decision not to give to the older ones. Yeah, and I think that's a significant point. You've got the older group who are dying, and yet you may be able to stop the spread of the disease by vaccinating some of these younger people. Dan, short comments uh, regarding vaccinating people in that 20 to 49 age group? I would would say that, uh, at least the data I've seen, the challenge um, with the 20 to 40 age group is that they should socially distance and wear masks uh, uh, and uh, and that that would help a lot of the spread that we're seeing in, in some of those age groups. Um, you know, we don't have enough vaccine uh, to to widely open it up yet. So I think I think uh, uh, certainly you know targeting the rollout in ways that address risk uh, is important. Um, but we do need to have the mindset of of getting as many needles in people's arms as quickly as possible. But I think the point that I am attempting to make here is that just because um, we're starting to get the vaccine rollout. We still have to have those behavioral changes in place. We have not broken the pandemic cycle here yet. The infectivity rate is still very high. And so um, uh, people still need to distance, wear masks. Um, uh, and I know it's we're all tired of it, right? Uh, it's been going on for like, like a year now. Um, and we're all, we're all tired of it. We want to see our family and friends again. But we have to have that vigilance still. Um, And um, I think that's another key point. Yeah, and I think that's so critically important. Just because we're vaccinating people doesn't mean we should stop wearing masks and social distancing and staying out of uh, group sessions. I want to wrap it up. I want to thank again our panelists. I appreciate all of you being with us today and engaging in this important conversation. For more of our healthcare insights, please visit our website at alvarezandmarsal.com. I'm Larry Kaiser. Alvarez and Marcel. Leadership. Action. Results.